0: covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, we will be reading to verse 18, which is the entire third chapter, the word of the Lord. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is that Boaz our relative, with whose young women you were? And Ruth replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, The man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman laid his feet. And he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing, hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Here ends the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. Luke chapter 18, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 8 this evening. The word of our God. And Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Here ends the New Covenant reading. Please turn back with me once again to the book of Ruth, because this will be the primary portion of God's word for the evening sermon. The Lord's grace towards us always finds its counterpart in the Lord's grace in us and through us. That is, whenever the Lord justifies someone entirely by grace through faith, that always results in the progressive sanctification of that individual, and that individual bearing good fruit for the sake of the kingdom of God. The reasons for this are fairly obvious. First of all, Christ is not divided. We cannot slice off the part of Jesus that is the Savior from the part of Jesus that is the Lord. And therefore, since you are saved in Christ, if you have Jesus at least in principle, you are committed to bowing down to Jesus as your Lord, and that will necessarily change the way that you live, and it will change the way you are living for the good. Second, the only reason why we come to believe in Jesus Christ in the first place is because the Holy Spirit has come and changed our hearts. He has taken out our rebellious and hard hearts, and replace them with hearts that are tender toward the living God. And when the Holy Spirit does that, he doesn't simply do that act and leave. Rather, he does that act in changing our hearts, and then he dwells within us. The Holy Spirit dwells inside every single believer. Now, to state the obvious, when the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you, the Holy Spirit is going to transform you, and he is going to bear fruit through your life. So if you are united with Christ and have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, then God will both be transforming your life and bearing fruit through you for the sake of the kingdom of God. I think that's actually really good news for us. But I must ask, doesn't Jesus in fact teach this very thing when he tells us, I am the vine and you are the branches? Yes, in fact, he does. Uh, let's move a longer uh, passage that I'm quoting from. Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, if you are united with Jesus, then you will bear good fruit. And Jesus says, you will bear a lot of it. By contrast, if you are not united to Jesus, then you cannot bear any good fruit at all. Jesus' words are really that straightforward. And as I say, that's really good news. Because one of the things that means is, if you are in Christ, God himself is guaranteeing that your life is going to matter for good. Both good in this world, and good for all eternity. Now when we were last in Ruth together, we saw that this was true in Naomi's life. It'll be helpful if we remember that the overall arc of Naomi's story throughout the book of Ruth, and I should say this evening, Uh, The book of Ruth is called Ruth, and Ruth is an important character. But in many ways, it's much more the story of Naomi than it is the story of Ruth. It's the story of God's love for Naomi as a wayward child that he brings back to himself by showering grace on her, and then ultimately blesses again, as we'll see when we come to chapter 4. Think about the arc of the story. In chapter 1, we meet Naomi leaving the Promised Land with her husband Elimelech to sojourn in the fields of Moab. We actually don't know, there's no way to find out, how much say Naomi had in that decision. Perhaps she and Elimelech were in together. Perhaps she had been begging Elimelech to go to Moab. Or perhaps this was a faithful wife her husband led and she followed. That we cannot know. But what we do know is that after her husband died, she stayed in the fields of Moab for ten more years. We ought not to see Naomi simply as a victim of circumstances. She was an active participant in abandoning the Promised Land. Then when the Lord visits Israel and blesses his people with a rich harvest, it is this change in circumstances that leads Naomi to go home. Naomi is focused on what she can see and what she can touch, rather than on the promises of God. It is not repentance, but a change in worldly circumstances that convinces Naomi it's time to go home. There's now food and wealth in Bethlehem. Remarkably, when Ruth gives her moving confession of loyalty, both to Yahweh and to Naomi, Naomi responds first by arguing with her, and then she simply stops talking to their daughter-in-law at all as they walk back to Bethlehem together, but in complete silence. Then a great commotion is stirred when Naomi returns to the little town of Bethlehem. I, I mean, after all, she's been gone for ten years. And the town is over all like, could this really be Naomi coming home? Well, you know, Naomi's name means pleasant. So Naomi says to them, don't call me Naomi, don't call me Pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Why? Because the Lord has dealt bitterly with me. Right? Naomi claims in these words that God has been hard on her. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord is afflicted The Almighty has brought misfortune on me. See, at this point in her life, Naomi's living entirely by sight. She's rebelled against God, she's been bitter against the Lord, and she's actually blaming God for her own circumstances, rather than recognizing that they are the fruit of her own rebellion. But that all begins to change in chapter 2 that we looked at last week. That's the point I want you to see it. this evening, in particular. Naomi's heart is not in the same place at the end of chapter two, beginning of chapter three, as it was at the end of chapter one. And the question we have to ask is, what led Naomi to change? You can answer that in one word: grace. God's grace had led Naomi to return back to Him. She has a changed heart because she's apprehended the mercies of God as she looks to the grace that the Lord is showering upon her. God's grace toward Naomi has opened up Naomi to the work of God's grace in and through her. So in verse 20 of chapter 2, Naomi says, May he, that is Boaz, May Boaz be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Do you see the change? In chapter 1, she's saying, the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. And now she's confessing, the Lord's steadfast love has never departed from me. It has never left the living, us, me and Ruth, or the dead, our husband's. This is, in fact, how we are changed for the better, too. The Christian life is simply our grateful response to God's prior work of grace in our lives. That's where the Huddler Catechism is structured. Guilt, grace, gratitude. We recognize our guilt. God gives us grace. And the life that we live out of that grace is our grateful response to God's prior work. As John tells us in his first epistle, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Our love for God is our response to his prior love, his prior grace for us. Now, of course, there is a call for us to love God. In fact, it's the great commandment. Right? You can't shove that aside in Christian life. But it is essential to keep the order right. We only turn from going our own way when we apprehend have have the mercy and grace of God to us in Jesus Christ. God's love and sovereign grace towards us always, always comes first. Now, this trajectory in Naomi's life. Of God graciously turning her from bitterness and gratitude is very important to pay attention to. And, and, and I needed to give you a very long introduction because so many commentators, in fact, almost everyone I ever heard preach on this passage, gets chapter 3 wrong. Not a little bit off, but fundamentally wrong. And I, I suspect that most of you have heard it taught uh, the same way that I have heard it. Regretfully, many preachers and commentators treat Naomi in chapter 3 as though she is some sort of reckless matchmaker with no concern for either Ruth or for God. But if we follow the narrative arc, which moves from chapters 1 and 2 all the way through chapter 4, we will interpret chapter 3 in a more consistent and a far more insightful way. The other key point I need to remind you of from last week is this issue about what kinsman-redeemer were required to do and what was required in leperate marriage. And that's simply because we're not ancient Jews and we don't think in those categories. But I want to remind you that the kinsman-redeemer is not required to marry anyone. The kinsman-redeemer laws were about land. It's about keeping land in the family. It was levirate marriage laws that required a brother-in-law I would argue a brother-in-law who's single, but, but there's a scholarly debate about that. But we require a brother-in-law to marry the widow of their deceased brother. Now that's important for us to remember. Because presumably Naomi does not have a living brother-in-law. She after all had to- told corporate Ruth that there was no hope for her getting married again. That would make no sense if there was someone who was legally obligated to do so. And of course Ruth doesn't have anyone that's a brother-in-law to marry her, because her brother-in-law is dead. Died in Moab with her husband. So there is no one required to marry either one of them. But secondly, there is no kinsman to redeem Ruth's land. And the reason for that is would obvious. She doesn't own a single square inch of land in all of Israel. Right? So even if a kinsman was required to redeem Ruth, she doesn't have anything to redeem the Redeemer would have to redeem by marrying Naomi. So you have to think, something that would have been obvious to an ancient Jew is how does this work of kinsman-redeemer end up needing to marry Ruth in order to get Naomi's land?
1: And the answer
0: is actually pretty simple once he asked the question correctly. The only person who has the, uh, the right to sell Naomi's land is Naomi. So, what is Stanley doing? She takes her land and she assigns it to her daughter in law, Ruth. She takes everything she owns, her entire estate. I would argue she's also giving up any possible hope she ever has for getting married herself. And she's saying, One of the conditions for buying the land that I have is that you will also marry my daughter in law. Now, that's actually a a remarkable response on her part when you consider that she's gone from being bitter toward God and not even talking to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, to now saving everything, everything she has for the sake of her daughter-in-law's well-being and also for her own future. Look at Ruth chapter 3, verse 1 with me. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest?" that it may be well with you? See, before, Ruth was a nu- nuisance to Naomi. But now that Naomi's apprehended the grace of God, coming from Boaz, coming from Ruth, back into her house, Naomi is now saying, no longer am I looking first about me, but about you. Should I not be seeking your well-being, your rest, my daughter? What exactly is Naomi doing here? As I point out, many sermons and even a fair number of scholarly commentaries treat Naomi as though she is just acting like a reckless busybody who is trying to push Ruth into a relationship with Boaz, even at significant risk to Ruth's own virtue and reputation. Have any of you ever heard Ruth talk that way? I want to suggest that if you've heard Ruth talk to her three times, It would be almost strange if you hadn't heard it taught that way, because I've heard it taught that way
1: all throughout my life.
0: But that can't possibly be right. Among many other things, Ruth is an entirely virtuous person from the moment she's committed to Yahweh. And this portrays Ruth as though she's simply going out to sexually seduce Boaz into some sort of relationship. And of course, it paints Naomi in a rather unattractive position as well, and it simply doesn't fit the purposes of the book. Such an approach simply doesn't fit with Naomi's response to the Lord's grace in chapter 2, and what we will look at Lord willing in chapter 4 next week. So let me offer you the alternative approach, which I think does much more justice in the passage, and actually helps us understand the whole book in a way that is very practical on our own lives. This verse involves Naomi responding in kind to the beautiful words of Ruth back in chapter 1. Let me say that again. That this verse about Naomi seeking to find rest for her daughter-in-law and everything that follows is part of Naomi's beautiful response to the remarkable profession Ruth had made back in chapter 1. Uh, that may be among the most famous verses in the chapter, so I'm sure they're familiar with you, but I'm going to read them again. So they're ringing in your imaginations, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people are my people, and your God is my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth makes this extraordinary profession of loyalty to Naomi. First, it's a loyalty profession to God, but out of that, she makes a profession of profound loyalty to Naomi until they both die. And Naomi responds with silence, wanting to talk to her daughter-in-law. But now Naomi's heart's been changed by the grace of God. God's grace toward Ruth was being reflected in God's grace through Ruth. The best that could be said of Naomi's response at the time was that she had reluctantly acquiesced to Ruth's beautiful pledge of commitment. Yet with chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi's world has been transformed by God's grace. Naomi now responds by committing herself entirely to Ruth. How so? Well, we've seen that the kinsman-redeemer was not required to marry anyone unless he was also fulfilling the levirate marriage obligation to marry his brother's widow. And that simply doesn't apply here at all. Yet when we come to chapter 4, we see that redeeming Naomi's property and marrying Ruth have been joined together. And the only way that can happen is if Naomi, who has the legal right to the land, has taken that right and said, the only way you can buy this property is if you also marry my daughter in law. Do you see what Naomi is doing? She is staking her entire worldly estate, and attaching it to Ruth is a type of dowry. By doing this, Naomi is giving up the only economic asset that she could bring into a marriage of her own, and as I suggested, she's really giving up any prospect of ever getting married again. By transferring her family property to Ruth, she is also making herself nearly entirely upon Ruth's future husband. Naomi is binding the rest of her life to Ruth in a very tangible way. Naomi is some eight weeks or so later responding to Ruth, and now it is Naomi who is saying, Your people are my people. Your God is my God. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. Isn't that beautiful? The Lord's grace toward Naomi has become His transformative grace in Naomi, as well as His grace through Naomi and back to Ruth. That's a truth that all Christians experience. Different people, obviously, involved. But the Lord's grace towards us always finds its counterpart in God's grace in and through us. So we should read verses 2 through 4 not as a plan for seduction, but as a very bold marriage proposal. Uh, by the way, the, the word in verse 4 that's translated cloak means a cloak that goes from head to toe. Right? She wasn't being dressed in some uh, scanty, seductive manner. She was simply taking off the outer garments that she would have worn, and she's working in the field as a migrant worker, as a and putting on something that was appropriate to make her attractive for the sake of asking Boaz to marry her. Um, All of you who are married know this. You didn't propose in the middle of cutting a law, right? You you, you did it in an environment where you were going to look better, be attractive, right? That's how it's done. That's what's going on here. Naomi is wrapping up her own future with Ruth's and she is guiding her daughter-in-law on how to go about the post-marriage to Boaz in a manner that is most likely to be successful, which Ruth, in verse 5, commits herself to carrying out. Ruth replies, All that you say, I will do. Verses 6 and 7. So Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her, And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then Ruth came softly and uncovered his feet, and lay down. Uh, Scholars have tried, but it's difficult to get the precise meaning of lying down at a man's feet here. Uh, Most likely it refers to a gesture of humility, and a willingness to follow his godly leadership should he accept her proposal of marriage. Ruth must have been a nervous wreck, though. Uh, you know, she goes there, she lies down, she's awake. You know, Ruth, I don't know if the story will not, but at every minute, must have seemed like an hour to her. I can imagine her heart pounding in her chest, wondering how well as we respond, wondering if, in fact, he would commit to marrying her. Finally, at midnight, Boaz is startled and he realizes that there's someone else in the threshing floor with him. Who are you? I don't know, because he thinks there's a thief in there. I mean, that's why he's lying to the threshing floor in the first place, to keep the thieves away from his grain. Who are you, he demands. To his great surprise, the reply came from a gentle young woman. As the tension went out of his body, Boaz heard words that would change his life, and actually the course of history, forever. I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. There is zero ambiguity in what Ruth is doing. Ruth is proposing marriage. Well, I I say there's three ambiguity. It would have been three ambiguity to Boaz. But there might be a bit of ambiguity to us. We need to unpack this just a little bit. First, you may have noticed that Ruth says more than Naomi had told her to say. Uh, Back in verse 4, Naomi had told Ruth that Boaz would know what to do. That is, Naomi was trusting in Boaz's virtue and good judgment. Not surprisingly, Ruth doesn't want there to be any possibility of misunderstanding what she's doing coming to the threshing floor in the middle of the night. So Ruth directly composes marriage to Boaz without waiting for him to figure out the symbolism of her lying down on his feet. Uh, let me just say, ladies, um, that's wise. Um, speaking on behalf of about half the men in the room, maybe all of us. We are not always the best at picking up on subtle clues. Sometimes it's best just to tell us what you want, uh, particularly in a matter as important as this. Second, Ruth says spread your wings over your server. Now that word translated wings can also be translated the corner of your garment or the wing of your partner. But the ESP wisely translates it wings so that we keep a connection with what Boaz said to Ruth back in chapter 2. Chapter 2, Boaz told Ruth, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, Boaz recognized that Ruth had come under the sheltering wings of Almighty God, and he prayed that the Lord would bless her for that act of faith. And then immediately he began to be the instrument through which the Lord did, gave Ruth that blessing. Uh, this is a common pattern in the book of now back in chapter 1, Naomi had prayed that the Lord would provide Ruth with a place of rest. I'm sorry, back in verse 1, Naomi had uh, prayed that the Lord would provide Ruth with a place of rest. That is a, sec- a secure home filled with the Lord's blessing. At the beginning of today's passage, Naomi asked that very thing. My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Naomi had asked this. Now she's trying to bring it about. She's trying to be the answer to her own prayer. That contains an important lesson for us. As we pour our hearts out to the Lord, seeking the Lord's blessings upon other people, one of the questions we ought to ask is, Lord, might I be the answer to my own prayer? Lord, would you use me to fulfill what I'm asking you for? Perhaps God will do that in your own life. Now Ruth was boldly asking Boaz to be part of God's, God blessing her by pledging his life to her in marriage. You recall that Boaz had prayed, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now Ruth was saying, Boaz, won't you be the one who provides me with the Lord's shelter and rest? Spread your wings over your maids, Third, it is helpful for us to know that the image of a man casting the edge of his garment, the other meaning of this word, over a woman was a well-known symbol for a commitment of marriage. Uh, one of the striking examples of this, in this case it has to be with the Lord marrying Israel, is found in Ezekiel 16, verse 8. There in Ezekiel 16, 8, the Lord says to Israel, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. See, that, that's the symbolism of the Lord marrying Israel, but the Lord spread the corner of His garment over it. And that's what it means here as well. The Lord Himself uses this image of spreading the corner of His garment over Israel as a symbol for taking Israel to be His wife. Uh, this, of course, should remind us that every marriage, but I would say particularly every Christian marriage, is intended to reflect and portray the relationship of Christ with his church. Now, all types do break down if you press them too hard, so we always have to be careful. But I think that Boaz's kinsman-redeemer clearly represents a type of Christ. And if that's true, it's perhaps also true that Ruth represents a type of the church. If that is right, then it is also with good reason that tonight's New Covenant reading would come from Luke 18. Uh, a reading about having boldness in prayer. If Ruth can boldly commit her request to Boaz, how much more boldly should we bring our request to Jesus Christ? How would Boaz respond? Look at verses 10 and 11, of the Verses 10 and 11. Boaz said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not come after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. See, Boaz receives Ruth's bold request for what it is. An honorable request. A good and upright request. And yet there's a catch in the story. You know every good story needs to have some wrinkles in it. And so you shouldn't be too surprised that the Lord weaves some wrinkles into the story of your life. But this one doozy. This is not a minor wrinkle. I think this is one that Ruth would rather have done without. Boaz continues, And now it is true That I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not going to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. Uh, Let's say that was not what Ruth wanted to hear. Uh, Ruth didn't want to get married. But Ruth had a very specific person in mind. She thought that Boaz was the man that God was providing for her as her future husband. Ruth had already found the redeemer whom she was looking for. She did not want to hear about another. Well, to see how this twist works out, you have to come back next week. Um, Don't you hate that when TV shows do that, you know, continue to the next episode. But there it But we're not enough good news yet for this week. Uh, Look at verses 14 through 18 with me. So Ruth lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another, and he said, "Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor." And he said, "Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out." So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went to the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. What's the big deal about Ruth bringing back so much food to her mother-in-law? Just one point. When Naomi returned to Bethlehem, she said, I went out full, and the Lord brought me back empty. And now the Lord through Boaz is making clear I will never leave you empty... again. I think that's beautiful.
1: As we are moved by the beauty of this
0: story, we ought to remind ourselves it's also our story. And we have someone better than Boaz as our kinsman redeemer. Uh, Ian Dugan puts it well. The real story, the real love story in this book, is ultimately not about Boaz and Ruth. The real love story is behind the scenes. It's the story of the love of God for his strange sheep. It is the love that chose and called Abraham, and then persisted in pursuing his rebellious offspring. It is the love that would not let them go, in spite of the centuries-long history of rebellion and idolatry. This love took its fullest shape in the coming of Jesus Christ. His love for us, took, us much fur- took him much further than a grain pile at midnight. It caused him to leave the glories of heaven and come down and live as an ordinary worker. It led him to come as a baby to Bethlehem, where he found no refuge. Unlike Ruth, there was no place of rest for Jesus in Bethlehem. No godly Boaz to protect him. Instead, he had to make do with the temporary place in the stable before he was driven out with his parents, having to flee for his life, even when he was a baby. The same love of God took Jesus all the way to the cross. There, in the midst of a darkness far deeper than midnight, he offered himself up for the sins of his people. There, was abandoned by God the Father who turned aside His face because He would not and could not look upon His own Son. Why did Jesus do this? It wasn't because we were such a wonderful people and He couldn't live without us. I trust you all know that. It is because God was so committed to saving sinners like us and this was the only way He could do it Maintain his own justice. It was out of God's love for us that Christ died. Do you know the love of God in Christ like this? Have you responded by giving your heart fully to him? If you do, he is your redeemer. And he will receive you, indeed he already has received you into his family. He will cover you with his wings and be your refuge. He will spread the robe of his own perfect righteousness to cover your nakedness. No matter how undeserving you are, no matter what you've done or what you've done, the invitation is open to come and be redeemed. God will welcome you for the sake of Christ. He loves his son Jesus Christ that much. And he he loves all those who trust in Christ that much as well. The question we have to ask ourselves is what is holding us back? You know, one of the great regrets many people have when they get to the end of their lives is they let a great love or a great opportunity pass by. Beloved, don't let that be you. If Ruth had passed through life without committing herself to Boaz, the book of Ruth would be a tragedy. Yet one greater than Boaz is here. Will you not flee to him with greater abandon in the coming week? What's holding you back? The biggest thing that you have to lose is the crushing guilt of your own sins. And you have an eternity of the love of God to gain. Amen.